You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is NPR's Voice of Books. His newest collection of essays is A Trance After Breakfast. His newest novel, now out in trade paperback, is Song of Slaves in the Desert. His latest ebook with three novellas is Paradise or Eat Your Face. Thank you for joining me, Alan. A pleasure, Rick. It's always fun to say that title of that last book, Paradise or Eat Your Face. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> It's so, spoken by a shaman. Spoken to, by a shaman. To a very disturbed woman. I, I would imagine so. <laughs> we have three fabulous books that work all over genre fiction but do a great job. Let's start with A Police Procedural by Jean Kerrigan. It's called The Rage. This is a really great novel. I think it has a really wonderful textured feel to it. Yeah, uh, it's a kind of classic police procedural. At the same time, it's Dublin. You know, Dublin is coming into its own as a crime city site, I guess. It's got a sociopath at the heart of it and a great, fair-minded Dublin policeman on the other side. His his name is Bob Tidy, which uh, tells you what he's interested in, I guess. He wants to tidy things up. And this criminal named Vincent Naylor organizes this armored car robbery that he botches along with a couple other people. His brother gets shot and killed, and he then tries to seek revenge against uh, the police who thwarted the robbery, uh, including the nun, who has, is a friend in her, or acquaintance of Bob Tidy's, as you recall, and she tips off Tidy about a, a car that's been abandoned on her street, and that leads to the undoing of the robbery that this guy in Naylor has planned, and he then seeks vengeance against the nun. So there's this, this <laughs> inexorable movement towards criminal retribution that this guy Naylor is working toward, and Tidy is trying to uh, head him off at the pass. So there's a lot of suspense to it at the same time, a lot of uh, interesting police techniques and all of this going on, this disruption going, disruption going on in the middle of Dublin, which we don't usually think of as a crime city. It's really nice to the way he evokes the city and the environment. I think that that's a, you know, Dublin, as is often said of cities, is a, is a really a character in this book, I think. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's very, it, it's quite a fascinating book to read. Very simply composed, moves along from one point of view to another, and then back to Tidy, back to Naylor, and, and uh, you begin rooting for the good guys in ways that you hadn't felt uh, like doing in a long time. I, I like, uh, too, the the kind of sparseness of the style and this feeling of the the police procedural is, has a really appealing feel to it because even though we aren't police, as we read the books, it makes us feel like we could be if we wanted to because he gets us into the perceptions of the characters who mm-hmm. are doing this. And I think I that's agree. a really great pleasure of reading these kind of mysteries. I'd agree. I'd agree. And, and, and it's just... Uh, it's nice to sit back and let the the cops and robbers fight it out because <laughs> you know usually you know who's going to win, but you don't know how they're going to do it. So it's, it's always fascinating. Well, it, procedural. 
and it helps too to have a, a really uh, a compelling uh, bad guy. Vincent Naylor, for all that he's bad, he's ambitious. He's not too smart, but he's smart enough to keep things going. And the way that he architects his crimes is just as interesting as the way that they're solved. So there's this kind of back and forth for us. If you want to think about uh, how to do some crime, there's some, maybe some good suggestions of stuff you can try. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think if you're going to learn how to commit a crime, though, you better not use this book as a manual, I think. Because <laughs> he does, well, you, you, I mean, I don't want to be the spoiler, but it doesn't turn out well for now. Even though that you know that in these books there's an inevitability to the way things are going to work out, I think that there's still a real pleasure in seeing, in going through those steps and experiencing them from both sides, that kind yeah, of tension yeah. back and forth. And yeah, you know, the be- I mean, the it, it's being a reader, you know, and if you've read as as you and I have, I mean, I, mean, I don't mean to blow our horns, but you know, we've read thousands of books. Mm-hmm. And the, the great thing about a good book is that it makes you feel as though it's happening for the first time. You just pulled in and dragged on. In that way, it's like a wonderful meal, or dare I say it, it's like sex. You know, I mean, just no matter how, I mean, most people are innocent every time they have sex, and that's the wonderful thing about it. Uh, and, and, you know, reading, at least for me, has that same kind of reward. Uh, I go into it and it takes me over and it's wonderful while it's going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's really true too. I like that idea of innocence because we're always innocent of the book we're about to start. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's doubly true of a, of a crime novel where innocence and guilt play a big part. Maybe, so maybe new books are like affairs, whereas a, a book you go back to again and again, it's like a marriage. That's right. Yeah, I guess we're. I'm probably married to Flannery O'Connor in some. No, I don't know. That's a terrifying thought. Or married to Dickens. Yeah. Married to Stephen King. Married to Stephen King. Yeah, I think that's a. Married to Borges. Maybe I better drop that metaphor. Uh, Married to Joyce Oates. uh, Let's take a a look at uh, a book that maybe is not so far from Carol uh, Joyce Carol Oates, uh, Burn Palace. Stephen yeah, Dobbins. this is uh, it's the umpteenth novel by Stephen Dobbins, who's, who's an accomplished poet. He's got almost as many books of poetry out as he does novels. But he writes these uh, uh, crime novels and psychological thrillers, I guess, to, to feed his poetry habit. And this one, Burn Palace, I think may be the best thing he's done. It's uh, it's set in the smallest state in New England, poor little Rhode Island, and it's a big, bold uh, novel about crime with a certain thin strain of the supernatural hovering over it also. Uh, he really puts uh, Rhode Island on the map as a very strange place to exist. It's, he sets it in this town called uh, Brewster, which is uh, just southwest of Providence, on the edge of the Great Swamp State Preserve. And, uh, and the style is, I guess you'd say, somewhere to the west of Dickens and in the vicinity of Poe and Stephen King. And, and also and it, Dan Simmons, too. It reminds me of some of the early Dan Simmons novels. Mm-hmm. And I, one of the things I really like is the the way that he takes uh, an average, you know, the 
turning the average American town and using these little strains of the fantastic and the mm-hmm. crime novel mm-hmm. to um, externalize and show people, you know, the the more venal strains that exist within these uh, sleamy, seemingly sleepy towns. Yeah, and, and, and it, all, it all starts at a place that, uh, you know, you think you get the most help, which is a hospital, you know, this antiseptic place, and the nurses... Uh, having this little thing in a supply room with this doctor who uh, turns out to be quite a horrifying character, as it happens, if, you know, but we learn about two-thirds of the way through the book. She walks away from the infant ward where she's supposed to be, abandons the newborns temporarily to have this little thing with the doctor on the night shift, and she comes back, and there's a snake. A baby's missing, and there's a snake in the crib, and in the incubator, it's horrible. Uh, well, I, I was happy to see the the coyotes get a, a big play in this, since we have coyotes in our backyard. So it's nice to see that they they are marauding elsewhere, all over the nation, giving the coyotes their. Well, dip. yeah, the coyotes have come back to the east, actually, but uh, these coyotes are seem almost supernatural. It's not a bunch of coyotes that you want to mess around with. Well, that's one of the things I think that uh, Dobbins does really well is to tread that line of uh, the supernatural and just our perception of something as supernatural, whether that matters a great deal at at some juncture is, you know, not not really true. You, You just... If we're scared of something, and you know, it gets to I think to the essential nature of what is what fear is. Yeah, I mean this 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 comes pretty close to uh, the feel of classic horror. At the same time, it's 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 right in the mainstream of uh, classic crime thriller. So he's really working uh, both sides of the bed here, and and a very successful book. I mean, it's it's a long book. Was it three four hundred page four hundred and 60-some pages, and you just uh, ride along with it. It's um, a great get-lost-in-it book, too. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're, you, for the time you're reading that, you are living in Brewster, Rhode Island, and maybe it's not such a great place, but it's a place yeah. you cannot wait to go back and visit every time yeah. you go back to pick up the book. Well, it's a charming place. You're, for, you're an insurance investigator, as one of the characters is at the very beginning. Comes down from Boston to investigate the situation, and... Next thing you know, he's found in his car on the edge of the Great Swamp Preserve, scalped. <laughs> scalped. Uh, and, Dobbins has a nice uh, imagination for uh, evoking horror that's not grotesque. No, not, it's not just gross-out horror. Yeah. It's kind of, uh, as Stephen King calls it, the, the, the finer version, it's the terror. He gets the kind of terror that gets under your skin. Yeah, but, but it, 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 he really most of the time doesn't take it over the line into the supernatural. I mean, if you remember the one of the the weirdest and most devastatingly awful characters in the book is uh, the stepfather of, of the kid whose snake is stolen to, and put in that uh, baby infant's crib. And this guy snaps. He has a psychic breakdown and becomes a kind of wolf man <laughs> loping along on all fours through the town in the middle of the night, stalking his uh, his own uh, stepchild. <laughs> well, and that's, I think, too, what's nice is that, um, as you say, going back and forth between the supernatural and the not yeah. the supernatural, again, the distinction is somewhat unnecessary. It's yeah. all... Yeah. 
Humans are capable of many things. All too many of them are not so good. Dobbins has that metaphor that really describes this, the, the mix rather accurately. He's, he's uh, describing the mind of this young boy who owned the snake, and, and, who's, and he's just gotten his first deer rifle. And he says the boy's mind is marbled with fantasy as a snake is marbled with fat. So the snakes are real. The what would we call them? Evil doers are real. The coyotes are uh, real. The man who discovers he or thinks he's a wolf is real, and but the, you know the only kid—I mean the only character who gets crosses over the line into the supernatural is the is the kid, that little boy himself. I'm, I won't I don't want to give away how that happens, but anyway, it's a terrific, uh, terrifically entertaining book and disturbing at the same time. And. Uh... His prose is a is a great aid in all of this. Yeah, in the create, poet crafting uh, the atmosphere and right. and the, the scene descriptions and the characters' internal monologues. Yeah, he's the poet works his way on these sentences. But talking about crossing the line, this um, third book we're going to talk about: Revenge, Eleven Tales, by, Eleven Dark Tales by uh, by Yoko Ogawa, whom whom I hadn't read before. I know. She's been a very successful writer with some novels, and uh, she is qu- quite uh, an anomaly. I think you know she. When you first read these, you think, "Oh, she's haunted by Murakami," but it turns out that she's got a much broader uh, group of sources in a way. It's not just Murakami, but Borges kind of hovers over the book, and even Poe. Mm, uh, that's think. what I was thinking. Was it? It had really had the feel. Uh, of Poe at his best, you know, we're so accustomed to Poe. He's such a part of our soul in literary souls and lives that it, mm-hmm. it's easy to not um, get how important he was and, that, and what a revelation he was when he appeared on the scene. And uh, books like this remind us how much that is true. Yeah, yeah. He really took the old, uh, I mean, traditional, you know, hundreds of year old tradition of ghost stories or, uh, and turn them into literary creations. And the stories here, I think, have some of that feel. I, I like the kind of the interconnectedness of mm-hmm. them. I thought that that yeah. really, uh, it's this uh, a somewhat uh, new format. Uh, you might call it the, what they call the mosaic novel. Yeah. This is not quite that far uh, into that. You're right. There's realm. a lot, I mean, a lot of images and incidents overlap, but there's also, um, it's, it's Am I right to call it somehow fractal? Because I think that's perfect. Yeah, that, that's it. I mean, it's a fractal novel because these incidents that you that that you witness in an early story suddenly appear in later stories. I mean, they're but the, in the later stories they're presented as things that are occurring in a work of fiction by one of the other characters. <laughs> so there's. You know, you get this figure ground effect where you don't know what's real and what's in a in a in a story by one of the other characters. I mean, it's really uh, haunting and strange. Um, Escher-esque. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in a literary Escher. Escher, fractal, figure ground. Wow, we're getting fancy here, but <laughs> well, I mean, I, there has to be. I mean, it is. These are not ordinary uh, horror stories or dark fantasy stories. I don't know what you, they're, they're out of the ordinary. And uh, 
I mean, she's really a kind of visionary in the way that she somehow comes out with this material. I mean, it would be hard to plan <laughs> in yeah, a no. rational way. <laughs> no, no, it, it seems... Uh, uh, it seems very imaginative yeah. and unique. I mean, this the, this is not uh, something that you pick up and say, "Oh, this right. is this is influenced by this, or this reminds me of this." This is really strange stuff. Yeah, and it's brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant in its own way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I don't mean to play a spoiler, but um, I mean just little little things like uh, a story called "Sewing for the Heart" about a designer, a, a man who designs. Handbags in sacks for you know, stylish tote bags for women. He gets this customer who comes in, and she shows him, reveals to him that she has a, her heart growing on the outside of her chest, and wants him to design a bag for her. And then a couple of stories later, we discover that she goes in to have her heart sewed back into her chest, which so infuriates the bag designer, really drives him mad because he's done his job for her. But now she doesn't need the heart bag, and he murders her in the hospital. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's really bizarre. Well, I like the kind of uh, the way the stories uh, telescope into one another is is another mm-hmm. way of putting it. That, uh-huh. oh, yeah. that they that one story kind of goes part way into the other, where it start ta- and the other yeah. one will take up take off part mm-hmm. way. I think that kind of uh, connection makes uh, the the stories richer. Mm-hmm. It gives. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a great kind of riff on a, a museum of torture instruments that's right. really creepy and, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, has that, that has kind of the Borgesian feel to it, I think. Right. The torture museum run by a suspender salesman, uh, by a, 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 a leg brace salesman um, who's hired by this old woman to uh, uh, curate her collection of uh, out-of-the-way torture instruments. Well, you know, one of the things, too, that, that uh, Ogawa does, I think, really well is to side-by-side uh, side evoke horror and discomfort. Mm-hmm. I mean, things that we shouldn't be horrified about, like, you know, leg braces or, and stuff, to put them side-by-side side with things that we should be. And, and, you know, one feeds off into the other, and it's it's a... It, as a reader, as a human, you read this and you go, oh, oh. Uh. <laughs> and part of what you're horrified at is your own reaction. You know, like the landlady who grows carrots in her garden that are in the shape of human hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe not what uh, Bugs Bunny was looking for. And the woman with the heart outside her body. The, these stories, I think, are, are really uh, wonderful. And also, this is the kind of book that you could read again and again and again and yeah. get different takes on these stories. This is a book that, you know, is a good nightstand book in case you're awake and need to stay awake much longer. Unless you want to stay awake. Yeah. <laughs> Revenge by Yoko Obawa. I've been speaking with Alan Shoes. He's NPR's Voice of Books. We discussed today Gene Kerrigan, The Rage, Stephen Dobbins, Burn Palace, and Revenge, Eleven Tales by Yoko Ogawa. Thanks for joining me, Alan. My pleasure, Rick, as always.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.